In October of 1972, an airline crashed high in the Andes Mountains. The flight was carrying 45 passengers and crew, including 19 members of a Chilean rugby team. 25 people lost their lives as it took over two months to find the crash site. Now, when news broke that survivors had been found, the world celebrated the tenacity of those who had clung to life. And then, the world discovered how the survivors managed to stay alive for two months, 12,000 feet up in the mountains, without food. It turns out that the survivors ate the flesh of those who had perished. Well, needless to say, that news shocked the world and created a moral dilemma for many. In the late 1980s and early 90s, the headlines were filled with the name Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer lived what appeared to be a quiet, unassuming life in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Except Jeffrey Dahmer had a secret. He was a serial killer, charged with the murder of at least 15 people. But what set Dahmer apart from other serial killers in history was what he did after murdering his victims. Jeffrey Dahmer would kill people, and then he would eat their flesh. He became known as the Milwaukee Monster. Now, there are not a lot of forbidden things left in our world today. The list of things that everyone basically agrees upon to be off-limits, to be out-of-bounds, is getting smaller and smaller by the day. I mean, no matter how bizarre or strange something is, there seems to be a sizable sample of people who defend it, support it, endorse it, even promote it. But having said that, one thing that still seems to be on the list of forbidden activities is eating human flesh and drinking human blood. I mean, eating another person's flesh and drinking their blood is still something that everyone seems to place on the other side of the line when it comes to decency and civility. I mean, I don't care how progressive or free-thinking a person claims to be, even the most open-minded individual would recoil if someone approached them and said, you know, I'm really hungry. Do you know where I could find a nice slab of human liver? I got a real hankering for a hunk of human liver. So then, if you want to communicate to the world that you have some serious mental and emotional problems, just stand in front of a crowd, tell them that you encourage and you endorse cannibalism. Now, mind you, if you want to raise the insanity level to another level, you could do this. You could claim to be a religious leader or prophet or messiah, and you could declare to everyone that the only way they can experience eternal life is by them eating your flesh and by them drinking your blood. I mean, that would be insanity on the highest level, right? I mean, insisting that another person's eternal destiny depends on them eating your flesh and drinking your blood, that's off-the-chart-level lunacy, right? Right? 2,000 years ago, Jesus stood before a crowd of thousands, and Jesus said this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. What was Jesus saying? And why was Jesus saying it? That's what we're going to spend the next 20 minutes investigating as we continue in our series entitled, The Confusing Moments in the Life of Jesus. 
In August of this year, social media influencer Kai Sanat was charged with inciting a riot. Now, how did he do that? Well, one day, Kai posted an announcement to his 4 million social media followers that he was hosting a huge giveaway in Union Park in New York City at 4 p.m. on Friday. Kai advertised that he'd be giving away free computers, PlayStations, gift cards, other electronic devices. Thousands of people swarmed the park and chaos ensued. I mean, such is the power of free stuff. In John chapter 6, a similar dynamic took place in the life of Jesus. A crowd of several thousand people received an all-you-can-eat meal of fresh bread, fresh fish, absolutely free of charge, all courtesy of Jesus. I mean, Jesus personally handed out the food to everyone. Thousands of people, free food, all they could eat. Thank you, Jesus. Well, as you can imagine, the next day, a massive crowd continued to follow Jesus. And how did Jesus respond to that crowd? Well, Jesus knew the main reason why many of them were following him. So Jesus said to the crowd, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus essentially said, You're not following me because you want to know the truth. You're following me because you want free food. That observation set off a conversation that led to Jesus' seemingly bizarre declaration. Jesus goes on to say, Hey, don't chase after food that will eventually decay. Instead, chase after food that will last forever. That's the food that I'm offering you. You simply need to believe in me and what I'm telling you. So the crowd responds by saying, Well, what sign will you give us that we should believe in you? Moses gave us bread from heaven. What will you give us? And Jesus goes on to say, well, hey, your ancestors ate the bread that Moses gave them and they still died. But if you eat the bread that I'm offering you, you'll live forever. So the crowd says, wow, that sounds fantastic. Give us some of that bread. And it was then that Jesus uttered today's confusing declaration. It was then that Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, as you can imagine, this statement shocked the people who were listening. I mean, it blew them away. Even his own disciples were scratching their heads. Jesus knew many of his followers were grumbling and complaining about what he said, so he looked them in the eye and he asked them, Does this offend you? Of course it offended them. How could it not have offended them? In fact, it offended a lot of people. In fact, John tells us that, and I quote, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I mean, it's not particularly shocking that people stopped following Jesus after that statement, is it? I mean, what would you have done? Would you be back at Broadway Church next Sunday if I told you that the only way for you to get to heaven is by eating my flesh and drinking my blood? A lot of people turned their backs on Jesus that day. John records Jesus even turned to his core 12 disciples and said, You don't want to leave too, do you? Okay, what was going on here? What was Jesus saying, and why did Jesus say it? Now, I don't doubt that many of you watching today already know the answer to the first question. 
You know what Jesus was saying, but you might be a bit confused about the second answer, the answer to that second question. I mean, why did Jesus say it? First, let's address the initial question. What was Jesus saying? Many of us are familiar with the statement, hindsight is 2020. It means that everything appears clear to you when you're looking back in time, when you are able to see now what you couldn't see back then. Well, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was foreshadowing the cross. Jesus was giving the crowd a veiled description of what was going to happen in the future. Jesus was saying, I'm going to be offering my body and my blood on your behalf, on behalf of the entire world. I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to purchase your eternal life by paying your moral debt. And the only way that you're going to be able to experience this eternal life is by accepting and receiving the gift that my deceased body and my shed blood will provide for you. We know this is what Jesus was saying because we know this is what eventually happened. Jesus' words are not mysterious or offensive to us today because we know he was not speaking literally. We're very familiar with these words because we're constantly repeating a version of these words every time we participate in a communion service. I mean, we repeat the similar words he spoke at the Last Supper, where he says, this is my body, which is for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. By the way, new covenant meaning new contract. The old contract, the old covenant, which we call the Old Testament, was where uh, God provided uh, a covering over of sins by the blood of animals, of, of sheep and lambs, goats that were sacrificed, and their blood covered over the altar, covered over the sins. It had to be repeated constantly. That's the old contract, the old way, the old arrangement God had with humanity. And he was teaching them through that uh, of the reality of sin and, and how the wages that sin pays is death. Someone, something has to die in order to, to, to pay the wages of our sin. And so these animals were slaughtered and killed and their blood was shed on our behalf. But it didn't cleanse us, it just covered over things. That why, that's why it had to be continually repeated. That was the old covenant, the old contract, the Old Testament. But now Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, the new contract, the New Testament, where he became the one and only spotless lamb. He was the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so his perfect sacrifice doesn't just cover over our sins, it cleanses us completely from sin. And that's what he was pointing out at the Last Supper. That's what he was about to do on the cross. So then, when we hear Jesus' words in John chapter 6, we get it. We know what Jesus was saying to them. We've cracked the code to Jesus' words. We understand the purpose of the cross because we understand the power of the resurrection. We know what Jesus was saying to that crowd, but we're a bit confused as to why Jesus said it. Why would Jesus say something that sounded like cannibalism when it wasn't about cannibalism at all? Why would Jesus say something that he knew would be confusing? Well, one of the reasons why Jesus said this is pretty clear. Jesus was weeding out the phony clingers from the true followers. He was chasing away those who were just following him for the free stuff. But that doesn't tell the entire story when it comes to the why. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why did Jesus insist on continually talking in mysteries with veiled and hidden meanings? 
Why didn't Jesus just stand up in front of everyone from day one and just tell everyone what was going on? Okay, people, listen up, listen up. Here's the plan. I'm God. I've come to the earth, appearing to you in human flesh. I've come in the form of human flesh for one reason. I'm on a mission. And my mission is this. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for the whole world. Remember, the soul that sins will die. That's what the Bible says. Well, even though I myself am sinless, I'm going to die in everyone's place, paying the wages of everyone's sin. But don't be afraid. I am then going to rise from the dead, thereby defeating the power of death and sin and freeing everyone from the penalty of death and sin forever. I know, I know, it's a brilliant plan. Okay, everyone, that's it. Just wanted to fill you in while I'm here. You're dismissed. How simple was that? It took me less than a minute to do it. Why couldn't Jesus have done that? The answer to that question is found in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. In that letter, Paul discussed the incredible wisdom of God when it came to God's plan of salvation. Speaking about God's plan, Paul said this. He said, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Back in high school, I played on the football team. Believe it or not, I played on the offensive line. It's a long story. I don't have time to tell you today. Now, if you're not familiar with the sport, in the game of football, you have the offensive lineman arranged in a straight row, and you have the defensive lineman also arranged in a straight row. These two lines are like two armies directly facing one another. The role of the entire offensive line is to protect the quarterback, to not let the defensive line get anywhere near the quarterback. The role of the entire defensive line is to attack the quarterback, to do all that they can to get past the offensive lineman and to tackle that quarterback. So every time the ball is in play, the two lines collide and the battle is on. The defensive line trying to attack the quarterback, the offensive line trying to protect the quarterback. No, you say, Darren, why are you talking about football linemen and a sermon about Jesus and God's plan for salvation? Stick with me. This is all going to make sense in a moment. You see, football is all about tricking your opponent. And there's a trick play that's often called when you're on offense and when you know that the defense thinks you're weak and vulnerable. There's a trick play you can call when you know that the defense is going to go all out, going to send as many players as possible to directly attack your quarterback. This trick play is called a screen play. Think about a screen door or a screen on a window. I mean, what does a screen do? A screen is like a filter. It stops some things from getting through, but it lets other things flow through. It could stop bugs from getting through, but it'll let wind perhaps flow through. Well, that's what a screen play does when it comes to football. When you call a screen play, you intentionally let people go past you. So, for example, when I played on the offensive line and our quarterback would call a screen play, what it meant was this. The ball would be, be hiked to the quarterback. The quarterback would step back with the ball looking for someone to throw it to. And we as an offensive lineman, we would step back and we would pretend to be, pretend to be trying to stop the defensive lineman from getting past us. 
And we would kind of put up a show, but what we would do is secretly, we would intentionally eventually let those defensive linemen get past us. The entire offensive line would do the same thing. We'd all pretend to try to stop the defensive line in front of us, but we would all intentionally let them get past us. The defense thinks they've defeated us on the play as they rush in victory towards our quarterback. Then, at just the right moment, the last possible moment, the quarterback tosses the ball over the heads of the onrushing defensive linemen to a receiver who now has a whole bunch of offensive linemen all set up to block for him. It's called a screenplay, and when it works, it's a beautiful thing to behold. But here's the key. This play will only work if your opponent doesn't know about it. If the other team knows you're calling a screen, it won't work. They won't fall for the trick. They won't run into your trap. It has to be hidden. It has to be a secret. It has to be disguised. If your opponent understands what you're doing, they won't attack you like you want them to attack you. Speaking about the wisdom of God's plan for salvation, Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, God's plan for salvation was a screenplay. God says, I'm going to let the enemy come at me. I'm going to let him rush me. I'm going to let him attack me. I'm going to let him to kill me. Because by doing that, he's actually allowing me the opportunity to rescue all of humanity because I will die in the place of humanity and then I will rise from the dead, defeating death, defeating sin, and offering this gift of forgiveness for everyone who asks. By the way, have you accepted this gift of forgiveness? If you haven't, in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to do that very thing. But that's what salvation was. And the enemy, he didn't know. He thought he had. He knew who Jesus was. I mean, the demons made that clear throughout Scripture. They knew who Jesus was, but they didn't know what Jesus had come to do. And so the enemy thinks, I've got him. I've got God in the form of a human. I can kill him. I can destroy him. And so, like those defensive linemen, he rushed, and Jesus allowed them to come at him, allowed the enemy to destroy him in the flesh. But he rose from the dead, triumphing over the grave, over sin and death. That is why Jesus did things and Jesus said things the way that Jesus did them and the way that Jesus said them. Jesus was keeping things disguised. He kept things hidden. He kept things clouded. So God gave us just enough information and God gave the enemy just enough information to accomplish all that needed to be accomplished for the world to be saved. And God did it this way because if Satan had understood what God was doing, Satan would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, some of Jesus' followers were walking together, devastated at the news of Jesus' death, grieving and thinking that all was lost. Luke records that Jesus appeared to them, but he initially disguised himself so that they didn't know him. They didn't know it was him. After asking and being told why they were so sad, Jesus said this to them. He said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, all that's in the Old Testament, he was saying. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets in the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
the resurrected Jesus revealed to them the breadcrumbs that were scattered throughout the Old Testament, the clues that were hidden in plain sight there. Clear enough that we can see them now, after they've all taken place, but cloudy enough that the enemy could not see them then while they were taking place. It was definitely a confusing moment in the life of Jesus. Jesus made his confusing declaration. Many people deserted him because of it. And Jesus then asked his closest disciples if they planned to desert him as well. And how did they respond? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's response. In the context, Peter was saying, Lord, we have no idea what you're talking about with this eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff. That sounds crazy to us, and we just don't get it. But it's not as though that's the only thing you've said, or the only thing you've ever done. We have a history with you, Jesus. We have seen too much, and we've heard too much, and we know you too well to bail on you just because we don't understand something. Maybe you're in a similar place right now. You're a follower of Jesus, but there's something that has happened or is going on in your life that's rocking your world. God's allowing something to take place in your life, and you just don't understand why. It seems out of character for him. It doesn't feel like or fit with the Jesus that you've known. So what do you do? How do you respond when God throws you a curveball? You just bail on everything that you've experienced in Christ? Does one unanswered question trump every answered question in your life? I propose that today's lesson, the big idea from today's confusing moment is this. When you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. When you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. Jesus asked the 12, you don't want to leave me too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. When you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. It was many, many years ago, decades ago, I was a little boy, maybe seven, eight years old, sitting in the back of our vehicle with my dad driving and my mom in the front and us four siblings sitting in the back seat. And we were heading home from visiting our grandparents. And we were heading over this big skyway, Burlington Skyway, uh, between uh, Hamilton and, and, and Toronto, in the Niagara region and Toronto area. We were heading back home. And there was this massive storm just ahead of us. Thunder, lightning, the darkest clouds I had seen in my life at that point. Just churning, um, broiling storm and lightning flashing and the thunder shaking the vehicle and the rain starting to pelt down to the point everyone had to slow down. My dad had his wipers on really fast. And I remember in the back seat thinking, Dad, why are you heading right towards that storm? I mean, this looks dangerous. Why are you leading us into that darkness? But I remember as a little boy thinking in that back seat, okay, I trust my dad. He's always loved us and protected us in the past. So I trust him that he knows what he's doing now. When you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. Let's pray together. God, we lift our lives before you right now. 
Perhaps as you're watching right now, you're facing things, you're experiencing things in the present or maybe in your past, and you're just scratching your head. You just don't get it. You just don't understand. In moments like that, when you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. Don't give up the truths that you know because of a mystery that is confusing you. You know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus has done. You know what he means to your life. Stand on the knowledge of your experience in him and entrust the mysteries to him right now. Maybe over the next little while, you'll begin to figure things out. Or maybe it's gonna be a mystery you will take to your grave. Either way, when you don't understand, stand on what you do understand. So Lord, in the midst of our mysteries, we declare we trust you. We don't know why we're heading for this storm. We don't know why we're surrounded by this present storm. But in the midst of it, we declare we trust you. We believe, help us with our unbelief. Strengthen us in the midst of our fear. Strengthen us in the midst of our doubt. Maybe you're watching right now and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You've heard about him, or maybe you once knew him, but you walked away from him. Maybe because of something he allowed in your life. Either way, I want to give you an opportunity right now to accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Just pray with me right now as though I was praying on your behalf. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge my sin. I've turned my back on you. I don't want to live that way any longer. So I choose to come to you to accept your gift of forgiveness and eternal life. You paid my moral debt. I receive your gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Come and live within me by your spirit and begin to transform me and change me from the inside out. And would you give me the courage to tell somebody about this decision before my head hits the pillow this evening? By the authority of the resurrected Jesus, I pray this. Amen, or so be it. If you just prayed that prayer with me, the best advice I can give you is to text the number that's on the screen right now. Now, don't worry, you're not joining Broadway Church. We're not going to place you on some kind of mailing list. We will simply text you back and offer our services to you in any way if there's anything we can do to help you take the next step. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us today. I hope you'll join us again next week as we continue in our series on the confusing moments in the life of Jesus. Thank you for being at Broadway Church today.